Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to New Haven, Connecticut to discuss acute severe hypertension in critical care. Okay, it's absolutely a pleasure to have you today. Um, could you please introduce yourself? Oh, sure. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm Aldo Peixoto. I'm the uh, Vice Chair for Quality and Safety in the Department of Medicine at Yale, and I'm the Clinical Chief of Nephrology here. I'm a nephrologist and a hypertension specialist, and uh, am a member of the uh, hypertension program at the Yale New Haven Hospital Heart and Vascular Center. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us today, Aldo. Today we'll be discussing your article published in the NEJM uh, entitled Acute Severe Hypertension, and we'll be focusing mainly on the management as pertains to uh, the critical care community. So maybe for the benefit of our audience, um, although you could explain to us what is acute severe hypertension and why does it matter in critical care? Sure. Um, the definition of acute severe hypertension is one that encompasses both what we used to call, and actually a ter- two terms that I still used of hypertensive urgencies and emergencies. So what that consists of is a blood pressure that's above 180 systolic and above 110 or 120 diastolic. Um, It becomes a hypertensive emergency if there's evidence of acute target organ damage, so acute brain injury, uh, injury to the heart or great vessels, or injury to the microvasculature. If there is no acute target organ damage, then we call that a hypertensive urgency. The difference between the diastolic blood pressure thresholds uh, has to do just with disagreements um, uh, across experts and different guidelines. So, for example, the U.S. guidelines have chosen a diastolic threshold of 120. The European guidelines have chosen a diastolic threshold of 110. Um, You know, these are very... uh, arbitrary thresholds. Uh, Obviously, there's no difference between someone with a systolic of 179 and 181 or a diastolic of 109 and 111. Uh, We need to understand this as a continuum. I think that the most important thing to, to remember is that it's a very high blood pressure, and I think that most people would agree that a blood pressure above 180 over 110 or thereabouts is a significant uh, elevation of blood pressure and the possible impact that that may be having on organs that are susceptible to to target organ damage. There's another component of uh, of uh, acute uh, severe hypertension that needs to be uh, remembered, which is in people who have been normotensive and who have a rapid rise in blood pressure. So a, a classical situation for that would be someone, a pregnant woman with severe preeclampsia. Uh, The thresholds may be less. Some of these patients may have uh, evidence of significant target organ damage, especially hypertensive encephalopathy, even with blood pressures that don't look too high. Uh, You know, for example, systolic in the 160s, diastolic in the uh, in the low 100s. So we need to take to 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 take that into um, bring that into context. And the 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 relevance to uh, critical care is that number one, it's very common, and uh, number two, it's associated with uh, with increased morbidity and mortality. So patients who have acute severe hypertension, uh, in particular. Uh, hypertensive emergencies um, have a, a pretty significant uh, in-hospital and um, and short-term mortality, so they need to be uh, managed um, aggressively. Got you. So the importance of understanding that this is a continuum and not relying on an absolute number. Um, so you mentioned here um, eclampsia as a cause for hypertension. What are the other major causes that we would see in the critical care unit with patients presenting with a hypertensive emergency. Yeah, so the most by far patients who present with a hypertens with acute severe hypertension, whether with target organ acute target organ damage or not, by far the most common is someone who has chronic hypertension who has stopped 
taking their antihypertensive agents. This is across the board in multiple observational studies. The the most common precipitant is the um, uh, discontinuation of uh, of antihypertensive medications. Now the the occurrence of specific causes needs to be entertained in some cases. So for example, someone who does not have an obvious precipitant that has to do with, let's say, poor adherence to medications, uh, or someone who does not have a uh, known uh, um, history of hypertension, then the threshold that we will keep to evaluate for uh, secondary causes of hypertension uh, will be lower. So then those are the patients that you're going to entertain the possibility of, uh, for example, renal vascular disease, a primary renal disease. So now not the kidney disease being a consequence of the severe hypertension, but the cause of it. So for example, an acute glomerulonephritis or patients with adrenal cortical hypertension. So someone with uh, primary aldosteronism may occasionally present as such or adrenal medullary hypertension. So that, that would be much more important to think about. Someone who does not have a history of chronic hypertension who now has a uh, a new presentation with severe hypertension, target organ damage, um, uh, it would be important at least to consider the possibility of, uh, of a pheochromocytoma in those patients. In younger patients, you have to consider the possibility of coarctation of the aorta. So all of these secondary causes need to be entertained, at least thought about, but not necessarily investigated. My point is that if someone has an obvious cause, and even the the, the case that I the case that I chose as a, a illustration of of acute severe hypertension in the uh, paper was a case of um, a patient who had a very well defined history of non adherence to therapy. So that patient does not require an evaluation of, of a broad evaluation of secondary causes until it becomes obvious that with adherence to therapy, treatment is not possible. And that's typically an outpatient decision a few weeks down the line. So in the hospital, uh, one of the things that's often overdone is um, an, an excessive evaluation of secondary causes. So my point is that you have to think about it, but uh, not necessarily go screening for all these causes if there is an obvious cause, and the most important one is non-adherence to medication. Yeah, that's a really important message. Uh, to, it does not get uh, too um, uh, over-aggressive in uh, working it out. So um, you give a really good um, uh, figure one in your paper on how we should manage patients with acute severe hypertension in critical care. Uh, for the benefit of our audience, maybe you could go through figure one and just go through um, how we should be approaching these patients in management. Sure. So that is a figure that, that provides what I think is a um, the what a stepwise approach should be. And it starts out by making sure that the hypertension is sustained. And for a second, let's leave the critical care space, but since your audience is, is primarily an inpatient uh, uh, audience, let's focus on the patient who may be on the floor and not in the ICU, and that you might get called to evaluate for a possible transfer. Okay, so let's let's make this not necessarily a critical care issue, but someone who's hospitalized. So the first step is really to make sure that the blood pressure, that the high blood pressure that's being observed is reproducible. So it shouldn't be based on a single measurement. It should be multiple measurements over the course of you know, 20 minutes or so with the patient rested, not with lots of other things uh, going on. If the measurement is consistently high, then the patient qualifies as having acute severe hypertension. So the first question we need to ask then is one that tries to separate 
a hypertensive urgency from a hypertensive emergency. So what we're asking there is, is there evidence of acute target organ damage? And it's important to define the word acute. So for example, a lot of these patients may have underlying chronic kidney disease or underlying kidney disease. They may have underlying heart failure. They may have underlying uh, coronary disease or have a history of stroke. But the that previous history does not qualify as an acute injury. You need to have an acute process ongoing. So it's acute decompensated heart failure. It's an acute coronary syndrome. It's a new evolving stroke. It's a new um, um, acute kidney injury. So you are going to be looking for signs of acute target organ damage to the brain, to the heart, to the large vessels, the kidneys, the microvasculature, so looking primarily for microangiopathic hemolytic anemia as a sign of involvement of the microvasculature. And the retina, which often um, gives you a window to the microvasculature. So the retinal exam is, is important. Unfortunately, um, I don't know about your institution, but oftentimes I hear from uh, the residents uh, in the hospital or the hospitalists that uh, they can't find ophthalmoscopes uh, to do fundus uh, examinations uh, in the hospital. That is really an important uh, thing to do because if you find acute injury to the retina, so the presence of new hemorrhages, exudates, uh, with or without papilledema, that kicks the blood pressure up a notch and makes it become um, a, a hypertensive emergency. So it's an important component of the um, evaluation. Then once you define if the patient uh, uh, has acute target organ damage, you then have um, a couple of options. If there is no acute uh, um, target organ damage, then the the patient should be managed according to the presence or absence of symptoms. If the patient is asymptomatic, so there is no target organ damage and there is and there are no symptoms, that patient should be treated only with adjustments of the long acting sort of chronic uh, hypertension uh, medications. If they are assuming that they are already on it, if they are not on it, you're going to resume them, and if it is new, you're going to start them. If there are symptoms, that's, uh, I give a little twist, which is a bit different from most guidelines. And the twist there is that I would like to give a drug that acts a little more rapidly. And the reason is just to relieve the symptoms that the patient may have. And what I mean by symptoms, it's typically someone who has a, heartache, a, a, a headache or, or a little discomfort in the chest, or they may feel lightheaded. They just feel unwell because of the high blood pressure. But those symptoms are not evidence of target organ damage. And if they have those symptoms, I tend to like to use a drug that acts, acts a little faster than just the long-acting, typical chronic hypertension drugs. And there are several options for these drugs. My favorite one is clonidine, and that happens to be based on personal preference. There's no evidence that it is better or worse than anything else. I like clonidine because it has, a, uh, especially in the inpatient setting, it has a, a sedative uh, effect. It's a m very mild negative chronotrope, so I don't have to worry very much about bradycardia, which is um, you know, a little bit more of a concern if I use my second choice, which is oral labetalol. Um, but there are several other options. I just happen to like clonidine, oral clonidine, or oral abetalol as my first choices. One important item here, and I think that that's uh, one of the main um, items of my paper, is that you should avoid using IV drugs. There's no reason to use intravenous agents in, in this setting. And a drug that has been used uh, very often in recent years, which is IV hydralazine, should be particularly avoided. And the reason is because the 
um, IV hydralazine tends to provoke a, a somewhat unpredictable um, uh, decline in blood pressure that's fairly brisk. And with reports of cerebral hypoperfusion related to that. So this is a, a, a drug that does not need to be used. And um, I've been jokingly on some kind of a crusade against that and, uh, and have been bringing this point up for a long time and made a clear point in this paper to, um, uh, to warn people to avoid using intravenous hydralazine in these cases. There's really no reason to use anything that's not uh, oral. So those would be the two pathways for patients who do not have acute target organ damage. For those who have acute target organ damage and then qualify as a hypertensive emergency, then those patients should be treated in the ICU with an A-line because the accuracy of um, oscillometric uh, blood pressure devices, the ones that we use um, in, in the hospital setting is uh, suboptimal in very high blood pressure ranges. Oscillometric devices tend to fairly systematically underestimate the blood pressure. They do not give precision. So if there is acute target organ damage, we need to manage them with precision. So an A-line would be uh, indicated in the ICU setting and the treatment should take place with IV drugs. And the choice of the IV drugs is dictated by the underlying pattern of target organ damage. So it will be different with, you know, different choices according to whether someone has hypertensive encephalopathy or an aortic dissection or acute decompensated heart failure or an acute coronary syndrome or um, a hemorrhagic stroke. So the choices will be slightly different. The targets will be slightly different but the management will happen in an ICU setting with an A-line with IV drugs. Well, that's a really good overview, and uh, thanks for going so systematically through your figure one. So let's turn our attention to those patients with the hypertensive emergency. So you broke it down into basically neurologic, cardiac, and vascular um, the groups in which you would target management. Um, how would you approach each one differently? And which medications should you avoid in each group? Because that sometimes, well, as clinicians, we do inappropriately. We give medications that shouldn't be indicated in certain conditions. Sure. So the, the, the first thing that I, that I think we need to remember is that a lot of these choices are driven by pathophysiology. So, you know, things that we think make sense. Um, and, uh, and not exactly by clinical trials. So a lot of what we, uh, rec what I recommend there, what is recommended in the guidelines and the way we practice every day, is not driven by um, uh, robust clinical trials. So evidence-based medicine uh, principles sort of uh, are, are, are not great uh, for the management of, of hypertensive emergencies. But um, with that caveat, um, let's then cover the, the, the different uh, uh, types of, of presentations. So the uh, patients who present with what we used to call uh, malignant hypertension, which is diffuse microvascular injury, uh, so you pick that up by the uh, presence of severe hypertension plus retinopathy or evidence of uh, malignant hypertension involvement of the kidneys um, uh, with or without micro, uh, uh, microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. So those patients can be treated with a, a variety of drug choices. Uh, probably the two most commonly used currently are labetalol or nicardipine. Nitroprusside remains a, a reasonable choice, although it's very often not available, especially in the United States. It's available but, but discouraged because uh, obviously there are issues related to toxicity. Um, 
there are issues related to cost. Nitroprusside has become tremendously expensive in recent years. So the combination of cost and toxicity has really decreased the use of nitroprusside, but it continues to be recommended uh, um, uh, by guidelines. One of the reviewers of my uh, of my uh, uh, paper actually wanted me to to kick <laughs> nitroprusside completely out of my paper. I did not think that that was uh, warranted. I think it's a drug that uh, should continue to be available for people who, uh, as long as there are still people alive who know how to use it, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a very useful drug. It's a powerful drug. You just need to be very cautious with its use in people with underlying renal disease or, or liver disease because of the risks of, of uh, um, uh, cyanide poisoning, thiocyanate uh, toxicity um, uh, in, in, in those populations. But, but that's why you still see nipride in my, um, in my paper, even though some argue against it. Uh, so for uh, malignant hypertension, labetalol and, and nicardipine are very uh, effective drugs. And these drugs are actually quite useful for most hypertensive emergencies. Patients who present with hypertensive encephalopathy uh, with or without evidence of posterior reversible uh, encephalopathy syndrome or PRESS, uh, those should be treated um, also with this same spectrum of drugs. In that one, I make a specific comment to avoid hydralazine. These are not patients that you can afford to have too brisk a reduction in blood pressure. These people have very impaired cerebral, cerebral autoregulation, so you cannot afford to have a, 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 an excessive blood pressure reduction. Um, uh, so, so specifically avoid hydralazine. And I make uh, recommendations of a decrease in blood pressure of about 20 to 25% during the first hour. So, so bring the mean arterial pressure by about 20 to 25% in the first hour. And then you have another six hours or so to bring the blood pressure to a, a target of about 160 over 100. And that would be a safe number to have. The... Um, uh, Management of, of hemorrhagic stroke and ischemic stroke is actually much better driven by, um, by data. There have been several studies, although studies with somewhat um, uh, uh, divergent uh, results. So the, for, for acute intracerebral hemorrhage, the, uh, uh, the consensus statement that I, that I drafted, uh, which was not only based on data, but also with a lot of conversations uh, with stroke neurologists that I trust. Um, uh, so the final recommendation is that if the systolic blood pressure is um, between 150 and 220, so that, that's sort of the, the, the levels that need to be addressed, that the systolic blood pressure should be decreased to about 140 to 150 within one hour. Now, it's important that you cannot go below 140. There's evidence of harm from that. Um, but there's also evidence of, of harm of uh, expansion, especially expansion of, of hematoma especially in people with large hematomas at baseline, if you, have, uh, if you go too slowly. So it's a, it's a, tricky, it's a tricky disease to treat, um, but you should not be too complacent, um, especially in patients uh, who have um, uh, an underlying vascular abnormality uh, or in, such as like a, a, an AV malformation or an aneurysm or in patients with large uh, hematomas. So you've got to be very cautious with those patients. Bring them down to that sweet spot or so of a systolic between 140 and 150, and you should do that promptly. The, and, and again, uh, this is described very clearly in the U.S. guidelines, uh, which is based on one of the clinical trials, uh, that if you lower the blood pressure below 140 in those patients, it might be harmful. The, the choice is typically labetalol or nicardipine. 
Now, clozidipine, uh, which is a drug that I do not have much personal experience, but it's a, it's a very effective calcium channel blocker. The clinical trials are, are show excellent control. Um, a price point is no longer that much of an issue. Uh, we don't use much clozidipine in our, um, in our uh, hospital other than the anesthesiologists in the OR. Um, so we tend to use mostly nicardipine for these patients. Again, the point of avoiding hydralazine. These are patients with underlying brain disease. The last thing you want to do is excessive, unpredictable blood pressure reduction. For ischemic stroke, the approach is more conservative. Um, there's a difference in guidelines according to whether someone is going to be um, eligible for thrombolytic therapy or not. If the patient will be receiving thrombolytic therapy, blood pressure is reduced to less than 185 over uh, 110 before the patient uh, uh, receives a thrombolytic agent. And then it needs to be maintained below 180 over 105, at least for the, 20, uh, the first 24 hours with the goal of uh, limiting um, bleeding risk related to thrombolytic therapy. If thrombolytic therapy is not going to be used, then there is no treatment until the blood pressure goes above 220 over 120. There's really, unfortunately, no evidence that treating those patients uh, uh, makes a difference. And because of the risk of uh, peri-infarct uh, uh, ischemia in the, uh, peri in the ischemic penumbra, uh, there is uh, uh, actually no significant blood pressure reduction uh, that takes place in the first two to three days after the stroke, and only after that, then blood pressure uh, starts being reduced. One important caveat is that um, sometimes these patients have concomitant disease, right? These are people who have cerebrovascular disease. They may have heart failure. They may have coronary disease. And if they present with, a, uh, for example, acute decompensated heart failure or a myocardial infarction, for example, then we're going to produce some control of blood pressure. And I proposed in my paper a decrease of blood pressure by about 15%, sort of very parsimonious decrease that's probably not going to put the brain at great risk and will unload a little bit the heart as a, as a possible uh, um, compromise. But you cannot ignore the fact that there's an, another organ down other than the, the, the brain making the, 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 the management um, quite complex. And the choice of drugs for acute ischemic stroke are fairly similar to the um, um, uh, hemorrhagic strokes or a preference for nicardipine and, and labetalol. Then as you move to the heart, then for acute coronary syndromes, we're a bit more liberal in decreasing blood pressure, and the proposed target uh, would be to bring them down to a systolic below 140. Uh, important to watch the diastolic closely. You don't want the diastolic to go much below 60, 65 to avoid the risk of uh, coronary hypoperfusion. And the, the preferred drugs for those patients are... Um, you know, nitroglycerin, obviously, which is also going to have an antianginal effect. Same thing for the use of a beta blocker, and that could be either IV labetalol or esmolol um, uh, and, or even metoprolol. So any of them would be acceptable. The, the antihypertensive efficacy of labetalol is greater compared to metoprolol. Labetalol is a reasonable um, um, uh, beta blocker, uh, uh, not much of an alpha blocker, but a pretty good beta blocker. So those would all be acceptable uh, agents. For acute decompensated heart failure, the target uh, uh, blood pressure reduction is about the same. Bring the, the systolic blood pressure to less than 140. Try to do that within one hour to unload the heart. And the, the uh, most patients are managed with uh, nitroglycerin. They are also being managed with diuretics, uh, since most, you know, by definition, they are volume overloaded. And uh, uh, nitroprusside can be of value in, in unloading these patients, but most are just managed with uh, nitroglycerin and, uh, and diuretics. If uh, renal function is normal, sometimes you may use an IV um, uh, ACE inhibitors such as analaprolat um, and hydralazine might be useful in these patients. That would be one situation where IV hydralazine may, may be useful.
And then finally, uh, the uh, patients who have aortic dissection, and uh, those are obviously very difficult to manage patients, but the key thing is the importance of lowering blood pressure rapidly to very low levels, so bringing the systolic blood pressure to less than 120. And what cannot be forgotten, you also need to lower the heart rate to decrease the overall stress imposed onto the uh, aorta. So it's not only the systolic being brought down to less than 120, but the heart rate being brought down to less than 60. And you want to de- do that as quickly as you can. In the paper, I suggest 20 minutes. That's consistent with guidelines. The bottom line is you try to get to those levels as fast as you can. And and to achieve that, you need a combination of a vasodilator and a negative chronotrope. So a good combination is esmolol as the beta blocker and um, uh, a, uh, a, for, for a vasodilator, either using a calcium channel blocker like nicardipine or, or clavidipine or nipride. So those would be the, 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 the strategies. You've got to use a vasodilator to bring the blood pressure down quickly and along with that, a beta blocker. And I like Esmolol because of how short uh, actin it is and makes titrations uh, easier. It's always when you're when you're inducing such a, a brisk change in blood pressure and heart rate, it's good to use drugs that you can try titrate quickly to make sure you um, you reach the targets quickly and to avoid overtreatment uh, and uh, and inducing excessive hypotension, which at times can happen. Oh, that's a really impressive overview. And for the benefits of our readers, I'd definitely recommend you go to Table 1 um, of Aldo's paper in the NEJM where he lists in columns uh, which target organ um, he's addressing. Um, in the next column, what the timing for the reduction is and what the target is, um, and then as well as the preferred intravenous drugs. Aldo, I want to turn our attention to, um, you'd mentioned the clavidopine, and a few of our uh, listeners may not be familiar with it. Maybe you could just compare um, nicardipine and clavidopine and any contraindications to using uh, clavidopine. Yeah, so uh, so the, the, the major differences have to do with uh, um, uh, duration of action. So, um, uh, nicardipine is a longer acting agent, so anytime you're worried about overtreatment, you will have, uh, you know, the, the the offset of the drug effect will be a little longer. The the, the drug will will hang around, whereas uh, clavidipine um, uh, clavidipine's effect goes away in about five to fifteen minutes. So so that would be, you know, along the same lines as I said. With, uh, in the management of aortic dissection, for example, that esmolol would, uh, gives you the convenience of, of titrating up and down quickly. Clavidipine affords you the same from a calcium channel uh, blocker perspective, and it's just as effective as, as nicardipine. There have been comparative trials between the two. The uh, contraindication is that uh, some patients with, uh, uh, because you get a reflex tachycardia in uh, a patient, and that's true for both nicardipine and clavidipine, um, patients with, because it induces a reflex tachycardia, patients with acute coronary ischemia should probably not receive those agents. And then one last thing that's particular to uh, clavidipine is that it's a lipid emulsion, uh, so it will increase triglyceride levels, and this emulsion is prepared with soy and eggs, so there need, patients need to be screened for allergy to, uh, to soy and to eggs because um, uh, they may develop allergic reactions uh, to the drug. And then do you infuse your clavidopine in a separate line, or uh, how do you administer it? I actually do not know that specifically, Dominic. I don't. I don't have any personal experience using clavidipine, uh, so I do not know that. Okay. Um, and then you had mentioned uh, several other uh, contraindications for the other medications, and just for the benefit of our listeners, um, uh, the beta blockers, uh, nitroglycerin, and hydralazine. Uh, which patients should we not be using uh, these drugs? Sure. So with beta blockers, the um, 
main contraindications are obviously a baseline bradycardia. So anybody who has uh, sort of a lowish uh, heart rate at baseline, I would avoid using them unless you have a very specific indication. So for example, someone with a heart rate of in the mid-60s who's dissecting, I'm still going to use a beta blocker. But someone who has a heart rate in the mid-60s that, that doesn't have a particular indication for a beta blocker, I'll, I'll take another drug. Um, the um, uh, second thing is, uh, is acutely compensated heart failure. So patients with, uh, even though the, there are benefits of beta blockers in the management of chronic systolic heart failure, in patients who have acutely compensated heart failure, beta blockers should not be used. And obviously, I don't need to teach pulmonologists about that, that uh, uh, non-selective beta blockers in particular, and, and arguably any beta blocker in, in patients with, with high grades of, uh, of uh, reactive airways disease should not, um, should not be used. Um, in the case of cocaine overdose, so for example, if the precipitant of a hypertensive emergency uh, uh, is uh, a uh, is cocaine overuse uh, overdose, um, uh, labetalol could be used with caution. Although I'm the the, the, the alpha blocking properties of Labetalol are so mild that I would probably avoid using it altogether. But I wrote in the paper caution for cocaine overdose. Um, non uh, beta blockers that do not have concomitant alpha blocking properties, such as asmolol and metoprolol, should not be used at all in patients with cocaine overdose. Then for the uh, for for nitroglycerin. The uh, main concern that I list is uh, is uh, patients who have right ventricular infarction, just to make sure that you don't decrease preload too much and provoke hypertension. That's almost never a big concern, but it's something to remember. Nitroglycerin is not a very effective antihypertensive. It, it, it works very well in heart failure and in um, and in uh, uh, acute coronary syndromes because through decreasing preload, it improves the, 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 the um, uh, hemodynamics, improves hypoxia. Patients with heart failure get better. Patients with uh, coronary ischemia have less chest pain and you start uh, and you, you, you somewhat decrease the sympathetic overactivity that's happening as part, as a response to hypoxia, as a response to pain. Uh, in patients who do not have those two syndromes, the net reduction in nitroglycerin in blood pressure is relatively small. I was actually quite surprised that the European guidelines include nitroglycerin as a possible choice in the management of um, uh, as the vasodilator for aortic dissection. That is not something that I think would be reasonable. Uh, you, you would need a, a stronger drug than that. Uh, nitroprusside the, the, has several contraindications, uh, should not be used in pregnancy. There's a, there's a risk of fetal cyanide toxicity. Uh, patients who have impaired renal function may develop thiocyanate toxicity. So that usually happens after about, uh, you know, at least 24 hours and, and especially more than 48 hours of infusion. So uh, that is something uh, for concern, but, uh, but it really uh, has to do more with prolonged uh, infusions. Patients with liver disease can have cyanide poisoning. And um, uh, so, so it's very important to keep in mind uh, and be very cautious with the use of uh, nitroprusside in patients who have underlying kidney disease, underlying liver disease, and especially so if you are uh, infusing uh, the nitroprusside for much longer than a few hours. There is some concern about increased intracranial pressure. Um, that is uh, not a uniform finding, and it still works quite well in patients with hypertensive encephalopathy. So, so it's important to keep in mind in patients who have documented um, um, uh, intracranial hypertension, but, but not usually as much of a problem. 
And then finally, hydralazine, I think I have mentioned to you enough that uh, that uh, hydralazine should be avoided really in most cases. It can cause reflex tachycardia and worsen uh, coronary ischemia. Uh, it produces unpredictable blood pressure responses, therefore putting cerebral perfusion at risk. Um, and uh, it's only used really to be considered is in pregnancy. And uh, although it falls second to, to other drugs such as labetalol, and uh, in patients with uh, acute heart failure. Well, thanks for highlighting those uh, concerns, Aldo, and I think it's pretty useful if the reader looks at Table 2 where you highlight uh, the contraindications. Um, I want to turn our attention and, to... And Dominic, uh, oh, go ahead. Dominic, one thing, there's also in the supplemental materials, I actually have tables that uh, extends it to um, uh, other drugs that are not mentioned here uh, and um, and with a, a little bit more detail, so those were uh, uh, that was information that was not um, that could not be fitted uh, into the, the 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 actual printed paper. But there's some further information in the supplemental material. Oh, definitely. We encourage the uh, audience to go and look at the supplemental uh, text. Um, I want to turn our attention to pitfalls that uh, the clinicians may experience when managing these patients. So you may have had the opportunity to be consulted on some of our patients in the ICU. Um, what are the mistakes that we commonly make and how can we learn from these mistakes to better take care of our patients? Okay. So I think that the, the, the first and most important one is um, less so in the ICUs, but more so in the, um, for example, step-down units, it's the over-treatment of patients who do not have acute target organ damage, although that can also occur in the, in the ICU setting. So um, I think that if you go back to figure one and, and remember that in the absence of acute target organ damage, you do not need to use intravenous drugs, you're going to be making mistakes much less often. You're going to put patients at risk much less often. We as physicians and nurses are often much more worried about these uh, blood pressures and we are often treating ourselves instead of the patient. So that's the most important thing. If you see high blood pressure, uh, you know, acute severe hypertension in the ICU setting and there's no acute target organ damage, just adjust the long-acting drugs. If the patient has some symptoms, use an oral drug such as clonidine or labetalol, and that is enough. That's what's justified by all the available evidence. So uh, that's probably the, the first and most important uh, pitfall. Another one tends to be um, probably excessive evaluation of secondary causes. And, and I think I alluded to this a little earlier in the podcast. And that has to do with um, the fact that, that lots of these patients, by the time I get asked to see them, all the workup has already been done. You know, uh, patients have uh, been sent to either for renal duplex scans or renal CTAs. And uh, there's an evaluation of uh, FIO and primary aldosteronism and uh, cortisol excess already cooking. Um, maybe the CAT scan, the CTA for the renals was also uh, also included a CTA of the chest looking for coarctation of the aorta. Those things are very important to think about, but if you have another cause, and as I said, by the most common one is non-adherence to therapy, the yield is going to be very, very low. So, so that's, I, I think, something that, that uh, I'm, I'm all for cost-conscious care, and, and this is one where we definitely waste a lot of, of money. It may be that we will miss a diagnosis, and it will be picked up in a couple of weeks when the blood pressure remains uh, uh, inadequately controlled. Now, that's not to say that, that someone who comes in 
with acute severe hypertension and a potassium of 2.2 should not be evaluated for primary aldosteronism in the hospital. That's pretty obvious, right? Or someone who comes in uh, uh, describing spells of catecholamine excess, you know, paroxysms of hypertension, diaphoresis, palpitations, headaches, uh, with or without a pale flush, with or without orthostatic symptoms. Those are classic field symptoms. So then, obviously, those patients will be evaluated in the hospital. But in the absence of any classic findings from any of the other syndromes, um, uh, those evaluations are usually um, fruitless. Um, I think that those would be the the uh, most important pitfalls uh, in the um, in the uh, ICU setting. The, the, there's one that I might want to say, which is sometimes a slow, too slow a reinitiation uh, or titration of long-acting meds. So so patients end up on a drip for too long. Uh, without uh, uh, initiation of long-acting meds. My recommendation in the paper is that that process be started in the first 6 to 12 hours of treatment. Their recommendation is based on the fact that in observational studies, most of the hypotension that can happen, in other words, over-treatment, happens in the first six hours. So wait for six hours without anything that's long-acting running in the background. But if the patient does well in the first six hours or 12 hours at the most, that's time to start long-acting drugs, such as a long-acting calcium channel blocker, a long-acting blocker of the renin-angiotensin system, a long-acting, uh, uh, like a thiazide-type diuretic. In other words, starting the long-term treatment of hypertension. Gotcha. Um, and then what other studies do you think we need to do to better understand um, uh, treating acute severe hypertension? Um, and uh, managing it. So I, I think there's lots that needs to be done. Um, there's we need to learn more about mechanisms. So and the mechanistic studies that are necessary have to do uh, largely with changes in cerebral blood flow according to, for example, rapidity of blood pressure reduction. Um, uh, the extent of the decline, so not even not not only how fast you bring the blood pressure down, but how far down you bring it, and according to different uh, drug classes, so there are differences um, in the effect of different drugs on uh, uh, cerebral blood flow and cerebral autoregulation. So it's not if, if blood pressure, cardiac output, cerebral blood flow, and autoregulation were all linearly related, it would be pretty easy to measure this. But there's a good amount of literature in the in the um, in the anesthesia literature that that is not the case. So it would be important to study this in patients uh, with acute severe hypertension. The only problem is for those of you who who have been involved in doing research in critical care, it's quite hard to get patients consented that quickly when all of this is happening so uh, and, and also getting equipment to make those measurements. So that's why the literature is so scarce in this. So I think the mechanistic studies are uh, would be very helpful to guide us further. We need clinical trials. This is uh, a lot of what I recommend is based on um, opinion. It's, it's opinion, it's personal preference, it's um, presumed pathophysiology rather than actual clinical trials. So clinical trials for drug choices and how they may impact outcomes. Um, uh, clinical trials, again, on the timing of, of blood pressure reduction. Is it okay to use the, the patterns of blood pressure reduction that I propose in my paper or not? Uh, most of my recommendations are based on um, uh, you know some small studies, some small observational studies, some experimental data, not really on clinical trials to guide us. Uh, really, the only field that has a good number of well done trials is uh, intracranial hemorrhage and then uh, I think that as we 
develop uh, uh, larger observational um, studies. For example, there are two registries uh, of, of this. There's a U.S. registry called the STAT registry. We've learned a lot from STAT. Uh, there's a European, the Eurostat registry. We also learned a good amount. They did. They haven't published as much as the the U.S. STAT registry. So it's important to have large registries that inform us on uh, how we are practicing, that identify complications that result from the way we practice, that identify favorable results from the way we practice. And that's unfortunately not very widely available. And then the last set of studies that I think would be very helpful uh, don't have to do really with critical care, but have to do with uh, resource utilization, which is um, uh, uh, there's there's no uh, there's a lot of ambiguity in what to do with patients who show up with acute severe hypertension in the emergency department. And, um, and the, the American College of Emergency Physicians has been uh, reluctant in making a recommendation to treat those patients. They make a strong recommendation for referral, but not for treatment. And I think that that might be missed opportunity, although I understand their position since there's not a lot of evidence to to support the fact that they, that starting treatment in the emergency room is favorable uh, or or induces more favorable outcomes. I think that that would be an important area uh, of research to better inform policy. Great, and uh, we definitely need those studies to be uh, performed in the future. And thank you for highlighting uh, the need. Um, Aldo, as we turn towards the end of the podcast, um, I just want to thank you so much for. Uh, giving us a really engaging and informative uh, interview. Um, is there anything that we haven't covered in this interview that we that you think our audience should know about or uh, that you were preparing for that you thought that we should really uh, pay attention to? Yeah, I think that the only thing that we didn't touch on is the issue of um, the timing of blood pressure reduction as it relates to um, uh, cerebral blood flow. That is really what, uh, the, the reason we don't go too fast is because we're worried about inducing cerebral hypoperfusion. And, uh, and I want to remind the audience that if they read the paper and they look at figure two, which is just a, a figure of cerebral blood flow and its relationship to uh, blood pressure reduction, that's, it's a classic figure for for hypertensive urgencies and emergencies. Just remember that those are um, uh, estimates from small studies, that there's a lot of intra-individual variability. So it's not like saying, oh, I'm going to drop this blood pressure by 25% and the patient will be fine. There will be patients who can tolerate a lot more than that, and there will be patients who will have cerebral hyperperfusion at that level. So just remember that it's not one of those things that you set and forget. You need to, to, to monitor the patient very closely as you are dropping the blood pressure. And, uh, and, and, and unfortunately, we, we do not have, uh, uh, um, as I said, clinical trial data to guide this. So that 20 to 25% reduction is usually safe Patients usually do not drop their cerebral perfusion very significantly, but I don't want the audience to think that that's gospel. Uh, there's a lot of intra-individual variability in the small studies that have been performed over the years. Well, thank you very much for highlighting that point. Um, I want to thank you again, Aldo, for a really great interview and for taking the time at the end of a busy week on a weekend to speak to um, our audience. I definitely encourage our ATS community to read your article in the NEJM. Um, it's detailed, it's very informative, and I think they'll learn a great deal. Uh, thank you for joining us, Aldo. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. A big thank you to Dr. Pichotto, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominique Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.